This is Andrew Smith, pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church here in St. John's County, Florida. I would like to extend to you an invitation to worship with us each Lord's Day at 1015 a.m. Our address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. You can also access archived video versions of these same sermons on our Facebook page. Additionally, our sermons are broadcast live on Facebook every Sunday morning. Now, let's open God's Word and listen to the sermon for today's broadcast. Well, take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. This morning, the text that I want to draw your attention to is Romans 6, verses 12 through 23. And I want to begin by reading the text, as I usually do. And in order to do that, I want to ask you to stand in honor of the reading of God's holy word. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, You are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and, having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations, For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Please be seated and let us ask the Lord to help us as we look at this text this morning. Father, we are grateful for this text. We are grateful for the Apostle Paul, our brother in Christ, writing under inspiration of the Holy Spirit to remind us of the importance of serving you, of living for you, of pursuing a holy life. We pray for our church as we place ourselves under the authority of this text that we might search our hearts to confess our sins, that we might be reminded of the gospel, that we might be stirred in our affections to live in a manner that is pleasing to you for your glory and for our own Christian testimony. This is what we are called to. This is what we must do. And indeed, Lord, this is what we want to do. We thank you for the grace of the gospel, which makes all of this possible. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. The primary doctrine under discussion in Romans chapter 6 is the doctrine of sanctification. As a matter of fact, chapters 6 through 8 deal with um, the doctrine of sanctification. And that word is actually used a couple of times in our text. It's used in verse 19, where Paul tells us at the end of it to present our members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. And then again in verse 22 where he says we have become slaves of God and the fruit that we get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. The point in chapters 6 through 8 is the subject of sanctification or holy living. 
that the grace of God demonstrated in the gospel does not lead to a freedom to live in a sinful lifestyle or to live any ways that we want to live. Paul is saying actually the opposite is true, that this freedom that the gospel provides frees us to live in a holy way in accordance with God's law. And as we saw the last time we gathered together to study Romans 6 in verses 1 through 11, Paul showed us that our union with Christ through the saving gospel secures for the believer several things. First of all, it secures for us pardon or forgiveness of past, present, and future sins. If you are united with Christ, you have been pardoned. But our union with Christ not only teaches that we have been pardoned, but it also teaches us that we are protected. We are protected from the wrath of God that has been unleashed from heaven against all forms of unrighteousness. So we have pardon because of our union with Christ. We have protection. And now Paul is getting at the fact that we also have power. We have power to live a holy life. And as Paul has promised again and again over and over in our passage today, he has told us that sin no longer has dominion over us. He says that in verse 14. And he also says, actually in verse 14, that the law no longer has power over us. He actually says that we are now under grace and that such grace motivates godly and lawful living. This teaches us two very practical things before we even get in the text, and that is, number one, we learn that holiness is impossible. Holiness is impossible apart from being united to Christ. If you have yet to be reconciled to Christ, if you have yet to have your sins forgiven, holiness is impossible. You might clean yourself up and you might look better than the next guy, but true holiness as defined in Scripture is impossible. Secondly, we learn that holiness not only is impossible for the unbeliever, but secondly, holiness is inevitable for the true believer because grace has power that the law does not have. The grace of God gives us power to live holy lives. Paul put it this way in Galatians 2 verse 20. He says, I've been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Paul says, the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. The reality that he gave his life up for me, that is what motivates me to live. And the power of God is seen in my life because I am drawn to the gospel and I'm reminded of the forgiveness that is mine by grace alone, through faith alone, and in Christ alone. And here is what Paul is wanting us to understand. The more the Christian basks in God's gracious and good favor, the more their godly affections are stirred to live to God's glory. The more you are reminded of the gospel through the preaching of the word, the more you are reminded of the gospel in the Lord's Supper or in baptism, which are emblems of the gospel, the more that your godly affections are stirred to live for God's glory. And Paul explains in this passage that before conversion, unbelievers are servants of sin but that after conversion, we become servants or slaves of righteousness. So there is an irony here in the fact that usually a slave doesn't want to be subservient to his master. And that is the case for an unbeliever. Most unbelievers are not happy in their sin. They don't want to be subservient to their master, at least not all the time on their best days. But for a Christian, we want to be slaves of God. We want to be servants of God. This is the power of the gospel. And so this passage is important because if we possess a self-righteous and legalistic spirit, if that is our motive for obedience, 
then we are starting at the wrong place. And that sort of defective place of beginning will actually lead to a disobedient life. If you are motivated by a self-righteous spirit or you're motivated to have your ego fed because of the way that you live in terms of a holy life, you will disappoint yourself, you will disappoint others, and ultimately you will disappoint God. On the other hand, the more we acknowledge and embrace God's grace in the gospel, not having a self-righteous or legalistic spirit, but humbly recognizing we don't deserve salvation and that salvation, as he says in verse 23, is a free gift from God, the more we sense God's love for us, Romans 5.5, that the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts. And such a pattern of meditation and thinking and acknowledgement of the gospel will actually awaken our holy affections and awaken our obedience and our motives will be rooted in love, not law. And our aim will then become God's glory, not our pride, not our ego, not our own glory. So as we look at verses 12 through 23, Paul teaches us that faithful and obedient Christian living operates according to six important acknowledgments. Six important acknowledgments of the Christian, allowing him or her to then bask in God's gracious and good favor through the gospel, which in turn will stir one's godly affections to live obediently unto God's glory. Six important acknowledgments. And I don't know where you are at spiritually this morning. I don't know what sorts of sin is in your life. I don't know how you evaluate your level of holiness, but I know this, reminding you of the gospel, reminding you of the forgiveness that is yours in Christ, reminding you of the things that you need to acknowledge that are true about you, whether you feel like it or not this morning, will be the greatest impetus for obedience in your life. Realizing the love of God, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on your behalf will actually not give you a reason to live any way you want to live taking advantage of God's grace. By no means, God forbid, you will want to live in obedience to him. So let's look at these six important acknowledgments that allow us to bask in God's glory and goodness to stir our holy affections. The first acknowledgement is simply what I want to call the practice. The practice, and it's found in verses 12 and 13. Let's begin with verse 12, where Paul says, notice the text, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Now the word therefore tells us that this is a conclusion to what Paul has been arguing throughout Romans 6 and even Romans 5, and that is the doctrine of our union with Christ. The fact that you have died to your sin uh, when Christ died on the cross. The fact that now you live before him because you were raised to walk in newness of life. You're now a new creature. The fact is verse 11 says that you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus because that is exactly the state of your affairs. This attitude of considering yourself dead to sin, alive to Christ, and this new status of being in union with Christ leads to a positive and a negative sort of practice. And Paul first mentions the negative practice in verse 12. Let not sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. See, Paul is personifying sin here as a dethroned monarch trying to exercise power to reign over the believer's life as sin did before conversion. But Paul says in verse 12, we must not let sin reign. We are not to, as he says at the end of verse 12, obey its passions. Now, because sin can from time to time use our mortal body, as Paul calls it in verse 12, as a sort of beachhead to try to conquer us, we must resist. 
To put it very simply, the practice of a Christian from a negative standpoint is to work hard at resisting sin and fighting sin. One theologian says the Christian must revolt in the name of their rightful ruler God against sin's usurping rule. And because we still have a mortal body, we have not been glorified yet. On a future day, we will be resurrected, we will be glorified, but while on earth, we are in the process of being sanctified. And this is important for us to understand. Our body is mortal, it's still subject to corruption and death. Sometimes our sinful passions, or you could translate that in verse 12, our lusts will sway us to live in a way that we know better than what we should live. Scripture says, resist these urges. In fact, we have a new urge. Peter says in 1 Peter 2, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. We at the moment of salvation have been transferred from the authority of Satan's dark kingdom. The authority has changed and Paul is saying now the allegiance needs to change. We're no longer obligated to sin's reign because we're new creatures. We're citizens of a new kingdom. And such a struggle is a holy war. That's why Peter says, I urge you to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. And the battle is going to rage until the end. So we need to nip sin in the bud. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. That is a certain thing, but it's not happened yet. It's coming in the future. So until then, we must fight sin. Paul put it this way in Romans 8, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Paul says, and not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our mortal bodies. There is a sense in which we are being sanctified. And because we are being sanctified, it is a present process, and that means there is a war between the flesh and the Spirit. Paul says in Philippians 3 that our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will, in the future, transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. But that hasn't happened yet. So Paul says negatively, here in Romans 6, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. He also says in a negative way, notice verse 13, do not, here's another negative, present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. This is another way of saying the same thing he said in verse 12. The picture here is being presented of that of sin trying to control our lives, leading to ungodly ways. And Paul is saying we aren't to do sinful things, period. Whether it's with our hands, with our feet, with our eyes, with our brain, with our fingers, with our tongues, with our toes. It doesn't matter. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. We are to present our bodies as living sacrifices, right? Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Not as instruments for unrighteousness. The eminent Reformed commentator John Murray puts it this way. He says, and I quote, The exhortation tells us that we are not to go on placing our physical body parts at the disposal of sin for the furtherance of such an end. Why? Because sin is no longer our master. And so Paul will at times speak about his own struggle with sin. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, I discipline my body and keep it under control lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. Paul, in essence, obeyed this principle, this command that he writes under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, 
do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. He disciplined his body. Now, later as we get into chapter 7, Paul will go into more detail. If you go with me just for example to verse 18 of chapter 7, Paul says, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but the ability to carry it, but not the ability to carry it out. Of course, that's not all the time because he's indwelt by the Holy Spirit. There's a struggle there. So he says in verse 22, for I do delight in the law of God. There is a sense in which I do in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. And Paul even says in verse 24, wretched man that I am. So there is to be a struggle with sin. And Christians are not to use grace as a license to speed through life hitting everything they can in their path, living any way that they want to live unlawfully. We are to fight against sin. And so Paul says this is the practice, negatively speaking, but he then moves to the positive. Notice back in chapter 6, the second part of verse 13, he says, in contrast, instead of presenting your members to sin for instruments for unrighteousness, he says, present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And then he says, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. It's interesting, the word instruments, it's the Greek word hopla. It's used here a number of times by Paul. It was an old word, as A.T. Robertson says, an old word for tools of any kind, like tools that would be located in a shop to build things, or even weapons of war, instruments of war. If you take the artisan metaphor then Paul is saying you need to use your hands, your feet, your brain, your tongue to build up, that is to advance God's kingdom. Use your life, use your body, use everything in your being in a righteous way. If you take the military metaphor, then Paul is saying use your hands, use your feet, use your brains, use your tongue to tear down strongholds and all that opposes God. So as Christians, we are to use the instruments of our body, everything that makes us up to the glory of God. Sometimes that means that we build up things to advance God's kingdom. We establish things, we initiate things. And at other times, it means we tear things down. Paul will say that we are to tear down strongholds. He says in 2 Corinthians that the weapons of our warfare are not fleshly. We have doctrine on our side. We must wage a good warfare by fighting for truth, defending truth, arguing for the interests of truth. And so I sort of lean toward the military metaphor of instruments, but I think the artisan metaphor is apt as well because we're called to build up things, initiate things, advance God's kingdom. Paul was very keen on using military language. He uses it in 1 Corinthians 9, 2 Corinthians 6, Ephesians 6, 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 Timothy 2, and a number of other different passages. One of my favorite is 2 Timothy 2, 3, where he says, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. You can view your life as a Christian, as a soldier in God's army. You've been given weapons and instruments to use in a righteous way. And I should even just say this on a side note that it is lost on me in trying to understand why some Christians are not interested in the culture wars. It is my opinion that we need more Christian educators, more Christian institutions, more Christian politicians and doctors and lawyers. We need more Christian everything because we are in a culture war. We are not to be pleased to sit in ivory theological towers treating our churches as monasteries and our souls as more important than our physical bodies, where we just sort of investigate theological things and have theological discussions. We are to be practical 
Christians who work hard for the kingdom of God Monday through Saturday, Saturday and Sunday to be motivated to then go back into the world. On the other hand, we are to fight the cultural war in a spirit of holiness and integrity. And so Paul is speaking about both what we do with our bodies and how we think as Christians in our souls, what we believe. It matters how we live. It matters what we believe. It matters what we say and how we say it. It matters how we work with our hands and our minds on the job site. And as we do all of these things, holy living must be a premium. We are not pietists in the sense that all we care about is the spiritual. We care about the practical. But as we do the practical, as we go about our lives, as we live before a lost world, we are to both build up and we are to tear down and we are to do it in a righteous way, using our entire bodies, our entire lives for the glory of God. Scripture calls for all of life and all of our lives to be lived unto his service, and this begins with fighting and resisting sin. I want you to notice that language there in the middle of verse 13 where Paul says, present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. This is really the ground or the basis upon which the command or the practice is given. He says, present yourselves to God as those who have already been brought from death to life. Paul is saying the fact that we are no longer dead in Adam, but actually alive in Christ, makes it unthinkable and actually inconceivable that we should allow sin to gain such a foothold that it seems to reign over us. That's what Paul's saying. He's personifying sin as an evil tyrant who's been removed from the throne but tries to get control of our lives again. And he's saying you can either use your instruments of eyes, hands, feet, tongue sinfully or you can use it righteously because you're still battling that battle with sin. So the question this morning is will you use your instruments for righteousness or for wickedness, for good or for evil? Will you use your hands for things that build up or things that destroy? Will you use your feet for running to the things of God, His law and His ways? Or you run away from God? Will you use your thoughts in an impure way, a lustful way? Will you strategize with your brain to harm others rather to help others? Will you use your tongue for praising and honoring God or for blaspheming His name and slandering others? The way of Christians is to live righteously. Thomas Watson wrote a work entitled Godly Man Pictures, and I love some of the metaphors he gives in this book. I would put it this way, slipping into sin in one area of your life leads you down a slope that will only end up in a cesspool of sin. But here is what Thomas Watson says. He says, one sin gives Satan an advantage over you, just like Satan held Judas fast by one sin. Everything was impeccable about Judas's character except for one sin, and it led to his ruin. Watson goes on to say, He who hides one rebel in his house is a traitor to the crown, and that person who indulges in one sin is a traitorous hypocrite before God. Watson says, One sin will make way for more, as a little theft can open the door to more. And then he says, Sin is linked and chained together. One sin will draw more. David's adultery made way for murder. One sin never goes alone. If there be but one nest egg, the devil will brood upon it. And then he concludes, Would you then show yourselves godly? Then give a bill of divorce to every sin. Grace and sin may be together in the life of a Christian, but grace and the love of sin cannot exist together. 
Therefore, parley with sin no more, but with the spear of mortification, let out the heart blood of every sin in your life. And this really was the genius of the Puritans because of all of their rich theology and all of the doctrine that they emphasized, they were practical Christians that said Christians must fight sin. Paul says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. There you have a command and the practice of the Christian followed by the promise that God is at work in you. And that takes us from the first acknowledgement, which is the practice that should mark our lives, now to the promise The promise that marks our lives, back in Romans 6 and verse 14, Paul puts it this way. He says, for, explaining himself, sin will have no dominion over you. That's a statement of fact, since you are not under law, but under grace. Now, this is not a command. It is a statement. It is a promise. It's not a command, but a comfort. It's not a precept to obey, but a promise to assuage. Notice the first part. He says, for sin will have no dominion over you. This is, of course, is written to the true Christian. And it tells us that the practice of holy living commanded in verses 12 and 13 is not meant to be burdensome because there is a promise that sin, though it tries, ultimately will have no dominion over us. And Paul is saying that is the strongest incentive for holy living. And then he explains what he means in the second part of verse 14. He says, since you are not under law, but under grace. Now, I am aware of all of the arguments and divisions, even within the reform world, over law and grace. What is the difference between law and grace or law and gospel? Paul does not mean the same thing when he mentions law every time. And here, when he mentions law and grace and he pits law and grace against one another, there's a distinction that he's making. He is not speaking about. He is not speaking about the law as it pertains to the old covenant under Moses in comparison to the grace under the new covenant in Christ. This is not what he's doing. He's not pitting the Old Testament against the New Testament. In fact, there was all sorts of grace that was demonstrated by God to Israel under the Mosaic administration, beginning with God's raising of Moses graciously to to deliver his people from Pharaoh and from Egyptian bondage leading all the way to his deliverance of them through the Red Sea where he parted the waters with the armies of Egypt on their backside. And not only that, but as we saw in the book of Joshua, he parted the Jordan River so they could go through and conquer the land. So law here refers generally to the commandments of God in any era, not the covenant under Moses, but the law of God in any era because God's law is unchanging. God's law is eternal. It is binding at all times and forever. But what Paul is saying is this. Believers are not under the law, the commandments, in the sense that they aren't under its condemning power. For the unbeliever, that's not true, right? The law hangs over the unbeliever in a powerfully condemning way. In fact, Paul has said, for the unbeliever, the law expects perfection. Galatians 3, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. So the law of God is a tyrant for the unbeliever because it expects perfection. But the law of God is also the enemy of the unbeliever because it exposes sin. Paul says this in Romans 7, verse 7, what shall we say then that law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. And 
Where the law was, it exasperated sin. For the unbeliever, the law expects perfection. It exposes sin in a strong way because the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, Hebrews 4 verse 12. So the law for the unbeliever expects perfection, it exposes sin, and it excites or it rouses sin within the believer. Paul says, but sin, Romans 7, 8, seizing an opportunity through the commandment or through the law produced in me all kinds of covetousness, for apart from the law, sin lies dead. That's the power of the law of God. For the unbeliever, it exposes sin, it expects perfection, It excites sin. So the law makes one's bondage to sin that much worse for the unbeliever. And that's why Paul says in verse 14, you are not under law but under grace. You're not under the condemning power of the law anymore because you're professing believers. And so therefore for the Christian, Paul promises in verse 14, you're not under the law but you are under grace. You're under grace. Now, the law of God is still God's standard of accountability But now it is your friend and not your enemy. Psalm 1. Now you delight in the law of God. Or now you can say with Paul in Romans 7.12 that the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. I love the law of God. I hate sin. Because you are under the reign of grace. No longer under the reign of sin and death. This is a promise in verse 14. So to sum it up, to be under law is to stand condemned in Adam. To be in the bonds of sin, to be in servitude to Satan, to be condemned under God. To be under grace is to rest in Christ. It's to recognize his finished work was accomplished for you. It's to be justified and not condemned. So this promise in verse 14 is so comforting and reassuring because we often might think or expect that God's grace could be taken advantage of. In fact, Paul said that in 6 verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul asked that question because people were raising that question. But Paul says, no, that's not true. By no means. We don't take advantage of God's grace. No, the true Christian does the exact opposite. We're not under law, we're under grace. And that grace produces holiness, and it produces a holiness that the law could never do. The law only exposes sin. The law only expects perfection. The law only excites sin and exasperates it. But where sin increased, grace abounds all the more. That's what Paul said earlier in his letter to the Romans. To stop right here just for one moment to give you the comfort to know this. That sin that is bothering you, that sin that is keeping you down cannot ultimately have dominion over you. God has given you the promise that the penalty of the law can never condemn you for your sins if you are found in Christ. You cannot have salvation taken away from you. And you've been given the Holy Spirit, which also will not be taken away from you. Therefore, there hath no temptation that confronts us, that we aren't able to bear, that we aren't able to overcome, because with the temptation, God provides a way of escape. It's important for you to acknowledge not only the practice God commands you as a Christian, but also the promise He assures your soul of. That is what motivates godly living. And that takes us to a third acknowledgement, and that is what I want to call the principle. The principle, notice in verses 15 and 16, Paul says in verse 15, What then are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? 
Now, this is echoing verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? You remember that the Jewish legalists were making false accusations against the Apostle Paul, saying that Paul's gospel was too good to be true. That Essentially, what Paul is teaching is that you can be justified and declared righteous and then not worry about the way you live your life. You can get away scot-free with your sin. You can live any way you want to live because you have the righteousness of Christ. God's forgiven you. Paul says, no, that's not at all what I am teaching. So he denies that charge that we can sin because we're no longer under the law but under grace. And he denies it by that phrase at the end of verse 15, by no means. Same word, phrase that was used back in verse 2 of chapter 6. It could be translated God forbid, although that might be a little strong, but it gets to the point. It is unthinkable to Paul that any true Christian would ever distort the gospel to such an extreme that they would say, because I've been forgiven, I can live any way I want to live. And now I hope you can see why Paul was so adamant in verse 1 God forbid, and in verse 15, God forbid this be the way, because what he's telling us in this passage is that the very purpose of God's grace in the gospel is to free man from sin in the holistic sense, not just free us from the penalty of sin, you see, but also free us from the power of sin, to live a godly life, and someday from the very presence of sin. So now, in verse 16, Paul gives to us the key principle for understanding the utter incompatibility of a life transformed by the gospel, living in a license-to-sin sort of lifestyle. Notice verse 16, he says, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death, or of obedience which leads to righteousness? Now, I love that expression, do you not know? Because it's like Paul's saying, you ought to know. Because the principle that I'm telling you in verse 16 is a principle taken right out of the life of Christ. Jesus preached, John 8, 34, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave of sin. That's exactly what Paul's saying here in verse number 16. In fact, uh, Jesus, and, and this, these verses could have been on Paul's mind. Um, he would have been aware of the teaching tradition of Jesus he would have known the other apostles and word would have gotten around. No servant can serve two masters for either he'll hate the one and love the other or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. Perhaps that principle is being articulated by Paul here in verse 16. He says, one way or another, here's the principle. You're a slave. Now you're either a slave to God or you're a slave to sin. And that's sort of shocking because when we hear of slavery, we think of, naturally, the slave trade in the West, the idea of going to Africa to take people against their will and to make them slaves. But slavery in the first century, although it had the component of conquering, Rome was an empire that captured slaves and, or captured people in war and made them slaves, and although slaves could be bought in the marketplace, there was also many, many people who were voluntarily slaves. Some estimates are that up to a fourth or maybe a sixth of the Roman Empire was composed of slaves. These were normal citizens who voluntarily gave themselves to be slaves. And you say, why would they do that? Well, if a person is in debt, they can't pay their bills, they lose their home and they have no food to eat, they go to a wealthy person and they say, will you hire me as a slave? I don't want any money, just provide housing and lodging and food for my family. And that happened throughout the empire. It was legal to do. Paul is saying there is a principle from this slavery illustration that's true about all of mankind. It's like we are all slaves, Paul says, 
And he's saying you can't give yourselves over to a master and say, I, I want to serve you, and then at the same time be free. It doesn't work that way. We are all bound as slaves. Paul says, notice verse 16, slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. So there's two types of slaves. Being in servitude to sin means you've not been freed by the gospel. That leads to death. He's talking about the second death, the lake of fire, eternal hell, judgment of God. Or you're in servitude to obedience. This is a reference to being in servitude and enslavement to God, to his will. This is a Christian whose life is marked by righteousness, as that's the term used there by Paul, because he's been justified. He's been declared righteous. And because he's been declared righteous in the present, that status of righteous will never change. Righteousness will never change in the future so that he will always be righteous leading up right to judgment day and into eternity. So Paul is basically saying that in Adam, sin and death reigned. Chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. Now he's saying that in Christ, grace and life reign, but you're still a slave. Slavery is an inescapable reality for every Christian. And every Christian is a slave of God, willingly to obey God. Listen to John, the apostle. He says, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. If you are enslaved to God, you obey God, and you love God's people. John says, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. John says, whoever says, I know him, I know God, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Now, I need to say a word about free will, because the pagan notion of free will pervades our world. And let me be clear, on the authority of Paul's inspired words, listen to me, you are not free. You are a slave. You say, well... All men have wills and a certain power to make decisions, absolutely. But those choices are made in connection with what we most desire in the moment. And apart from Christ, here's the problem. Until your sinful nature is changed by the gospel, until you become a new creature, you will have no authentic inclination toward the things of God. The choices you make boil down to when, how, why, and to what degree you manifest your sinfulness. But you can't escape the fact that you're a slave to sin. I can put this maybe in very practical and childlike terms, that if after the service I took all the kids to the ice cream store to buy them ice cream, and inevitably children have their favorite flavors of ice cream. So if you like chocolate ice cream and you hate vanilla, I can pretty much guarantee you're going to choose chocolate ice cream 10 out of 10 times because... Although you have the ability cognitively and physically to choose vanilla, you won't because by nature you detest vanilla and you love chocolate. You see, Luther's most important work was bondage of the will. And in that work, he argued that apart from Christ, we are slaves to sin. Paul's saying that here in verse 16, but he's also saying, guess what? You're a slave of God if you're a Christian. Thomas Brooks, the famous Puritan said that every man obeys Christ to the, to the degree that he prizes Christ. So as a Christian, you can willfully 
obey Christ to the degree that you willfully prize Christ. So that rejoicing in the gospel is not merely a privilege, but it's a duty. And that's really what Paul's getting at here. You want to have victory over sin in your life. You want to be more conformed to the image of Christ. Of course it takes the Holy Spirit who births you into the kingdom of God and conforms you to the image of Christ. But to the degree that you work out your salvation with fear and trembling, to the degree that you meditate upon the gospel and prize Christ, will be to the degree that you obey Christ. Here's what Brooks says at greater length. He says, and I quote, Though no believer does what he should do. Boy, is that not true. Yet doubtless every believer might do more than he does for God's glory and for the eternal good of others. He says, affection without endeavor, that is loving God without obeying him, is like Rachel. It's beautiful, but it's barren. They are blessed that do what they can, though they cannot but underdo. In other words, every Christian is called to the duty of obeying God. And it sounds really good to say that you love God. And it's really beautiful to have an affection for God, but it's like Rachel. It's a beautiful woman who is barren. There's no fruit. And blessed are us when we do what we do, even though we always underdo. Because we are seeking as slaves to please our master. In other words, true believers don't just say they love God. They prove it by service and devotion to God as slaves. So these acknowledgments, I think, are critical. If there was ever a passage in all of Scripture that is practical to help us live a godly life, we must acknowledge, first of all, the practice that we're called to, verses 12 and 13. Secondly, the promise that we're assured of, that sin will never ultimately have dominion over us. Third, the principle that we're a slave either way. So why not choose to please our master? But fourth, there is the position, verses 17 and 18. We have positioned ourselves before God in a posture of commitment. You have committed yourselves to God, Paul says. Notice verse 17. But thanks be to God. That you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. Conversion is about commitment. And I, let me say very clearly this morning, am a proud Calvinist. If you doubt that, then just... um, Check out the name of my fourth son, which is Calvin. However, Calvinism teaches that true conversion involves a commitment. And that's the language of this. But notice how Paul begins. Before he even gets to that, he says, But thanks be to God. In other words, he's going to put a barrier here before he says what he's going to say to make it clear that he's not going to praise the Roman Christians for their service, their devotion, their obedience. He's going to praise God, but thanks be to God. A very popular expression by Paul. He uses it in 1 Corinthians 15, 2 Corinthians 2, 2 Corinthians 8, 2 Corinthians 9, other places. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So he wants to make it clear, but thanks be to God. We only have God to thank for our rich salvation. God has sovereignly called us. He has sovereignly elected us. He has sovereignly empowered us. He has sovereignly changed us. He has sovereignly indwelt us. We have been, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, been brought to a place of sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. Those are the words of Peter, 1 Peter 1-2. We have been called not only to justification, but also sanctification and obedience. 
This is what we have committed ourselves to. Peter says in 1 Peter 1, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. There has been repentance in your life. There has been a change in your life. You have committed yourself to God. So Paul says, thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have now changed. You become obedient from the heart. That's sincerely. To the standard of teaching to which you were committed. It's very interesting language. I'm going to quote MacArthur here. He says, Obedience neither produces nor maintains salvation, but it is an act of obedience made possible and prompted by God's sovereign grace. Salvation does not occur apart from an act of commitment on the believer's part. The life-changing work of salvation is by God's power alone, but it does not work apart from man's will. God has no unwilling children in his family, no unwilling citizens in his kingdom. And I can just sum up what he's saying to say this, apart from faith, there's no salvation. But guess what? Faith is a gift from God. And if you really demonstrated faith and you really demonstrated repentance, which you had to because faith and repentance are two sides of the same coin, then you have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which, notice this, you were committed. You were committed translates paradidomy. It could be rendered delivered. And uh, it's oftentimes used um, in passages that speak about delivering the gospel, like in a sermon or delivering the gospel to the next generation. And Paul speaks about the standard of teaching to which you were committed or delivered. The standard of teaching refers to the gospel, sound words of the gospel, 2 Timothy 1.13, sound doctrine, 1 Timothy 1.10, sound teaching, 2 Timothy 4.3, same Greek wording, the standard of teaching refers to the gospel. And so in one sense, we have a duty as parents, for example, to pass the gospel on to our children. Pastors have the duty to pass the gospel, to deliver it, paradidomy over to others. We might expect, Paul, therefore, to be referring to the gospel delivered to believers. But instead, notice the language. He says, you become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. In other words, you committed yourself to the gospel. Yes, there's a sense in which the gospel was delivered to you and committed to you and you were saved, but you also wedded yourself to the gospel. And thus, having delivered over yourselves by God's power and grace to the realities of the gospel and to Christ, Christ now controls your affections. And what is the result? Well, the end of verse 17, you have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you've been committed. And verse 18, you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of righteousness. There was a point in your life where you said, I hate sin and I love Christ and I want to follow him. That's all Paul's saying. That's the position that you are in. You made the commitment by God's grace, but you made the commitment to be his slave. Are you going to go back on your promise? You voluntarily offered yourself as a slave to God. After the Holy Spirit moved in your heart, you wanted to know Christ. You wanted to follow him. That's true Calvinism, and that's the true gospel, and that's what Paul's saying. But that leads us to a fifth principle, and it's what I want to call the paradox We see it in verses 19 through 22. Paul says in verse 19, I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. Now, Paul is not being snarky here. This is not uh, a prideful statement by Paul. Um, 
He's qualifying everything that he said by an almost apology. That's the, the way that I would look at this. This is almost an apology. Because in explaining the urgency and the importance of the Christian's devotion to Christ, Paul had to resort to the metaphor of slavery. And that's what he's talking about when he says, I've had to speak in human terms. Human terms, by the way, that are inspired by God, but human terms in the sense that I've had to use a worldly, earthly analogy of slavery coupled with your natural limitations, the natural limitations of his readers and of us. What are our natural limitations? Paul's not saying you're so stupid that I have to dumb this down. That's not what he's saying. He's simply saying you have natural limitations. I have natural limitations. We live in a complex world. It's difficult to understand God. So I resorted to a slavery metaphor because you still have a mortal body yet glorified and you are still susceptible to temptation. And if I don't remind you that you are a slave of God, you might take advantage of God's grace. So remember, I'm speaking in human terms. We need reminded of the commitment we made to God. Our being committed to the gospel and to his power and being yielded to the Holy Spirit. So Paul's saying the slavery analogy is just that. It's an analogy. It's an analogy that shouldn't be pressed too far. So he says in verse 19, For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. As former slaves, we use the members of our body for impurity, leading to lawlessness, which led to more lawlessness. We don't need to explain that. We know that's personally true with everyone. So now, what are we to do? Paul says, well, in light of the fact that you're still a slave, but a slave to a different master, present your body, that is your life, all of it, as slaves to righteousness, leading to, and now he uses the word sanctification. He's not just talking about sheer obedience. He's talking about this process by which the Holy Spirit, who indwells us, conforms us to the image of Christ, to the glory of our triune God. Hagiosmos is the word for sanctification. It simply means holiness, being set apart, The power for holy living is found in reminding ourselves that we are dead to sin, alive to Christ. We are in slavery to God. We have been, let me quote 1 Corinthians 6, been bought with a price. We've been redeemed out of the slave market and we are slaves. So now, here's the paradox. Because the slavery metaphor works only if you turn it on its head. And I'll show you what I mean. Verse 20, Paul explains, For when you were slaves of sin, notice this, you were free in regard to righteousness. That's interesting. Usually you would never categorize slaves as free. But Paul says our former slavery to sin had a kind of freedom. Now granted, it was a bad freedom. We were free in regard to righteousness, which means we were free from the ability to live righteously, which means we actually really weren't free. But he's using the idea of freedom to make his point. And here's how we know, verse 21, but this so-called freedom, what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. Paul's saying the fruit was rotten. The things you used to joyfully say, look how free I can live, you now view as rotten fruit, and you realize that the end was death, and justly so. But as slaves to God... Paul is saying we have a better freedom. Notice verse 22, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, 
The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. We have a better freedom. We've been set free from sin to be a slave to God. And what does Jesus say? Well, he says that his yoke upon us is easy. And even that his burden that he places on us as his slaves is comparatively light. And what is the fruit of sanctification? It's the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5. It's the love and the joy and the peace and the kindness and the goodness and the self-control which marks every part of our lives, hands, feet, minds, tongues. We've been set free, verse 22, from sin. Wow, we're free. You say, well, he just said we're slaves. We're slaves because we want to be. But we're free slaves, free from sin. I love, although he's very wordy, I love Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. And he says this, commenting on this passage. He says, and I quote, Sin in the Christian is no longer our master. It's just a nuisance. We know it can't dominate us and control us. At times we allow it to gain a foothold. We want to please Christ. We know it's just sort of in the way. Jesus said, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Jesus nor Paul, either one meant freedom to live in sin. And that's Paul's whole point. The opposite is true. Grace doesn't give you freedom to sin. It changes you so that there's a paradox where you want to be a slave to God and where you're actually free not to sin because you're free from the power of sin. In fact, I can illustrate this for you. When God commanded Pharaoh to let his people go, to be set free from their slavery. Do you remember the reason that he gave? He gave it in the 16th chapter, or the 16th verse, rather, of the 7th chapter of Exodus. Here's why God set them free from slavery. Listen. That they may serve me in the wilderness. That they may serve me. God delivered Israel. God delivered us from our bondage. To become his slaves. This is a paradox because people living in sin have the facade of freedom. I can do whatever I want. I don't have to listen to church elders. I don't have to listen to the word of God. I don't have to listen to you. I'm the captain of my own fate. I'll do whatever I want to do. Paul's saying true freedom is only experienced by those in Christ who are able to live as God originally created them to live. And that's only possible through union with the second Adam. Adam was originally created to honor God, love God, worship God, serve God with all of his being and the world that God gave him to advance that garden beyond where it was and to grow it. And he failed. It's only through the second Adam that we have the image of Christ, the second Adam restored to us, where we then can reflect what it truly means to be created in God's image and to honor God. So just as there is no such thing we could say as a static athlete, so too there's no such thing as a static Christian. Verse 22, this leads to sanctification. That's the process of becoming more holy. Athletes are either getting better or they're getting worse. There's no neutrality. And you're either getting more holy or less holy. The gospel is meant to lead you in the path of sanctification. And how do you do that? You remind yourself over and over and over and over again of who you are in Christ. 
Yes, you acknowledge the practice. God's commanded you to live differently. But you also acknowledge the promise, sin won't have dominion over you. You've died to sin, you're alive in Christ. You understand the principle, you're now a slave to God. You once were a slave of sin. You understand your position as one of a posture of commitment to God. You've been committed to the gospel and you've given your life to God. You recognize the paradox, you're actually free, though you're a slave. And that takes us, number six, to the point. What is the point? Well, verse 23, you all have it memorized. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This entire passage can be summed up with these two absolutes, two sides of the same coin. The first part, for the wages of sin is death. That is spiritual and physical death. Paul is saying is warranted for sin. It's earned. It is the just and appropriate wages or compensation for sin. It's what every sin deserves. It's what every sinner deserves. But here's the other side of the coin. The free gift of God That salvation, the gospel, is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Salvation is a free gift. It can't be earned. It can't be bought. It cannot be achieved. For we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and in Christ alone. For by grace you have been saved, faith. And that not of yourselves. It is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So Paul ends the whole thing encouraging obedience in the life of a Christian, even telling us that we are slaves to say, look, don't think that you're earning your way to heaven. God is not looking for those to adopt the ethical teachings of Jesus to try to personally reform themselves. He's not looking for an improved and renovated you He has not come to call the righteous. He's come to call the sinners to repentance. And those he calls, is what Paul is saying, he will no wise cast out. He will rebirth his people into the kingdom. He will change them. He will indwell them. He will resurrect them. He will glorify them. Jesus has come to save us from sin, the penalty of sin, the power of sin, Someday the presence of sin. So as verse 17 says, thanks be to God. We're no longer in Adam, we're in Christ. We're free from sin, we're slaves to God. Paul is saying, in light of these acknowledgments, go and live in accordance with the character of your new self. Why? Because you have the power to do so. Because there's nothing more powerful than the gospel. And that is why we eat of the Lord's bread and drink of the Lord's cup regularly because they are physical emblems reminding us of the things we need to acknowledge about the gospel to motivate us to live godly lives. To Him be the glory and thanks be to God alone. I hope this sermon from God's Word has ministered to your soul. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.christreformedcc.com. Also, for access to more sermons, articles, and a podcast I host entitled Today in Church, His Story, you can visit www.pastorandrewsmith.com.